Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Welcome to the Healthcare Happy Hour. Today, we have Janet Troutwine and Perry Braun. Perry Braun is the Executive Director of the Benefit Advisors Network. Benefit Advisors Network is comprised of agencies in the employee benefits space that work collaboratively to bring solutions to the complex issues employers are faced with today. BAN, as it is referred to, has clients in 45 states, the territory of Guam, and recently expanded into Canada. Perry Braun leads BAN and has worked in the insurance and healthcare space for 35 years. And of course, Janet Troutwine is the CEO of the National Association of Health Underwriters. So Perry, thank you so much for being back with us. Every time we record something with you, it's we always get a, a lot of interest in it. And I personally always enjoy talking with you. So we heard what BAN is, but I mean, what do you do for your brokers that makes them love you so much? I mean, what is it that you do that makes BAN special? It's a great question. And I always enjoy coming on this hour with you because I learn more, I think, than what I give. So thank you for this as well. I think what the secret sauce of BAN is that we have some of the, I think, leading experts in their fields collaborating and sharing their ideas and sharing their thoughts of how they're solving problems for their clients. And so you may be, you may feel like you're isolated in Austin, Texas with no resources and no intellectual support. But yet you come into a family like ours, and I stress the word family because that's what it feels like when you're in here. And you can dialogue with someone in Indianapolis or someone in Boston, Massachusetts, and learn what solutions and what problems they're solving for their client. And you can apply that then into your market. And so it's that creative collisions that happen that I think bring good outcomes for their clients. That's great. I know that you have so many loyal members of BAN, and we always love working with you. But Let's go ahead and get started just with kind of the hot topics of the day. And Perry and I do a little back and forth often. And so, Perry, I'll just let you kick it off. Well, no, thank you. And, and everybody loves this part of our hour together where we get sort of just, you know, first thoughts that come to mind. But before I do, I love your organization because I love what you represent. And I love how you represent, equally important, the membership that are part of NEHU. And I would encourage everybody to join NEHU, not just as a member, but also to support your political action committee and your, and your activities on the legislative front, because our voices need to be heard in Washington. And you know this better than anybody else. So there's my plug. But I think it'd be helpful for our audience who's listening in, if you could just share some of the key issues that your organization is tracking and some issues that, you know what, most people don't really think about that they should be. And I think that'd be helpful to our audience. Yeah, I'll just hit a few of them because we track so many. So I want, I want to start on the regulatory front because the fact is, is that we take advocacy seriously and we lobby the administration just as heavily as we lobby Congress. And when I say lobby, sometimes people think that's a bad word, but what we do is we present ideas to them and practical suggestions 
that can be helpful to them as well as helpful to us. The things that we work on are important to the people who are our members, which are really health plan professionals of all types, and also to their clients. Because look, if your clients cannot continue to offer coverage to employees or someone cannot continue to afford coverage, then you have no clients. And we consider that a direct service to those people who are our members. So as an example, we're very heavily involved on the regulatory side and all of the pending regulations coming out, for example, on broker compensation disclosure, on surprise billing. We do a lot in the area of mental health parity. So I want you to think of plans that that brokers are involved with and how difficult it is sometimes even to make sure there's a full network of providers there, as well as can they access those? Is telehealth in the mental health space going to be available and so forth? We look a lot at things that might get overlooked by others. For example, as we talk about the things that the Biden administration wants to do and the new Congress wants to do, for example, in expanding tax credits or allowing new types of plans to be available, what happens to the employer firewall? So if they let people opt out of employer-sponsored plans, what are the rules for that? There's a firewall right now that says that someone can't opt out of an employer-sponsored plan and access a premium tax credit in the individual market unless they do not have a valid offer of employer-sponsored coverage. If that firewall goes away, then the only people that are going to be left in employer-sponsored plans are the old and sick people. So it's things like that, the employer tax exclusion. When we're working on an issue like Medicare solvency, which is going to be a huge issue coming up, of course we care about whether Medicare remains solvent. But you know what I care a lot about is how are we going to pay for this? Are we going to take money away from the employer tax exclusion so that people would be taxed on the benefits their employers pay for? So it's things like that in those categories, and they change all the time because new things come up. I guess I'll stop there, but there are a lot of things like in that category. Thank you for providing a broad brushstroke as well, because I think if we were to survey the normal member, the regular member that's participating in NAHU, I don't think they would think about many of the things you just talked about and how interconnected these issues are to other issues that aren't necessarily directly tied to what you're doing, but are connected to other things. I love the fact that you're focusing on mental health because I think coming out of this pandemic, I think we're going to see an uptick in mental health utilization and usage because of the isolation effects that we're just now beginning to, I think, study and understand. So thank you for that. Just some real quick thoughts. New administration, new enthusiasm, lots of new executive orders and new policies. Biden's first 100 days, what comes to mind? They've been quite busy, haven't they? And they've done quite a bit through executive orders. They've also done a good job of coordinating with Congress because we look at the first item that came through reconciliation, the administration got most of what they wanted in that first reconciliation bill that came through. So they coordinate. What's interesting is about this administration is they are getting a lot of what they want. And it so happens that today, the day that we're recording this, We have the first joint session of Congress that Biden is addressing tonight, and he's going to be introducing some new things. And what will be interesting to see is how much of those, now that we're getting to that end of the 100 days, 
and the honeymoon period is theoretically over, will Congress pick them up or will they piecemeal it? Will they decide to push through another big reconciliation package with all of the stuff in it or only take some of them? So I, I think that's something to look forward to. They've gotten quite a bit done that they said they were going to get done. Another thing that's interesting about the first 100 days is they have been at warp speed on pushing through political appointees, which sounds like, uh, who cares, political appointees, but actually it, it is important. It's really important to everything that happens to us in the administration as to who's in those key spots and not just the top spots, but three or four levels down, because those are the ones that are writing the regulations or directing the regulations for all of these things that matter to us. So we've already had tons of listening sessions and, and discussions with them. So it's a very interactive process. So it's a little bit ahead of its game there, I would say, as compared to what you normally see in the first hundred days. But if you're interested in what the president might announce, some of this stuff is pretty interesting. He's talking about uh, four years of free education for everybody. That's one thing. He's looking for providing some new limits on how much parents can pay for childcare for their children and limiting it to 7% of their income, which for some, you know, for especially for people that have a larger families and a lot of small children that would need to be in daycare, that that's a pretty big deal. He's looking at a national comprehensive family and medical leave program, way bigger than what we have now. It's looking at expanding the tax credits, some of them that were in the first reconciliation bill on the American Rescue Act to keep in place the levels on the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, the child and dependent care tax credit. And also another big one is the tax credits. They definitely, this is a huge item, and I'm pretty sure that this will get picked up. They want to take those tax credits in the individual market that they included in the, the first reconciliation bill and make them permanent. We predicted that they were going to do this. This is pretty quick action to do that. And the key thing there, the key thing will be making sure that they don't do anything with that firewall there. If they do this, we have to make sure that it doesn't damage employer-sponsored coverage. We're going to be watching that. On the public option, they've kind of gone back and forth with that. And I think that they've sort of tested the waters. And I'm not sure that they'll push that through at all in the next couple of measures. Not that they aren't going to still work on that. But I think that they are thinking that that might stir up a hornet's nest that they're not ready to deal with right now. They don't want to inject that much controversy so that it would just slow it down. Because they like this pace that they're working at. So they're going to get as much done as they can as quickly as they can. And again, there's always that eye on the next election, correct? The midterm. Uh -huh. Arguably, with the U.S. Census results coming out and two very significant red states losing a portion of representation to arguably blue states, it'll be interesting to see how strategists start to you see, sort of thread the needle, right, on some of these legislative right. activities and how it might impact the election. Second topic, pandemic, in it, coming out of it. What's your sense? I want to be the optimist, and I, I hope that we're coming out of it and, and some new thing doesn't. I know that we need to come out of it. It's, it's starting to feel like we are. Yeah. However, I'm still concerned that there's some lingering stuff out there. 
And I say that because NEHU has a COVID-19 relief fund, and we had requests from members for assistance uh, since the time that we came forward with it. However, lately, the requests that we're getting to that fund are much more severe than they were before. So the people that are making requests now are sicker, their families are sicker, it's more than one person in their family. And that gives me a little bit of pause to say, we want to be optimistic about it, but we can't throw caution to the wind. So we're being really careful at NEHU, you know, with our own team at NEHU, but we're also, you know, hoping that our chapters are doing the same. I I have to say there's a lot of difference from state to state. Yeah, right, exactly. And again, I think we learned in 2019, November and December, how one region of the world inadvertently could create this global phenomenon. And then I look at countries like Brazil and India, where these hotspots are surging again, and how quickly can we get the world vaccinated in some respects for those that want it to slow down the progression? Because I think right now we're, we're correlating optimism to equal vaccination is controlling the surge. Again, I'm not sure that the science is caught up yet with the data. We'll see. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but it sort of leads to the next question, right, which is return to work. We've been in a remote environment for 15 months, and I guess as a leader of your business organization, how are you falling on returning to work? Back to the office, hybrid, still working remote, do you think? What's your sense? We are not in the office. We have a couple of people that go in occasionally just because they need to and they go in separately. They're not near each other. And we are thinking about gradually opening up over the summer. And when I say gradual, I mean, we really aren't sure this is over yet. And so we're moving really slowly. Uh, Some of it will depend also with us on the reopening of Capitol Hill and particular our government affairs department and their need to do their work once things actually become face-to-face again. They've just started to open that up a little bit, but not completely. So it's still pretty arm's length. And most visits, most lobbying visits are still virtual. Almost all of them are. I think I'm, I'm going to try to open our office on September 1st, barring any crazy thing happening that we'll come in. We have a handful of people that were not remote employees before, but will stay remote. Gotcha. But for the most part, people will be back in in the fall. Thank you. That's all I had on my side. So my turn. I want to talk about industry trends because I know that you see a lot with all of your dealings with, with the people that are members of BAN and just your overall knowledge of the industry. So my first one is industry trends that you know we probably saw before COVID-19 that haven't changed that are still big industry trends. So there's really three. First is consumerism. The second is shortages in the supply chain. And the third trend, I, I think, is the prescription drug cost structures and cycles. And so on the, on the consumerism side, I think for the very first time, we're beginning to see the millennials start to influence consumerism because they're now surpassing boomers with the amount of product and service that they're buying in this country today. And they have a very different way about going about purchasing goods. And I think it is a trend to follow in the future as well. So how they purchase, what they purchase, what connects to them, I think is going to be a trend that may be new, but it is still something today that 
really hasn't changed because this is a relationship business. This is a service business. And that that contact between two people, the buyer and the seller, the advisor and the recipient of the advice, the consultant and the client, the broker and the client, this is a relationship business. And I think we need to continue to adapt and change to understand how buyers are buying things and then make adjustments in our own service mix to do that. Sort of leads to the shortage side, right? And you can break it down into different categories. There's still a nursing shortage and we need to figure out how to re-engineer the educational system to put more nurses into the pipeline and get them get them into the industry. And in many respects, the healthcare industry and the insurance marketplace have been competing for nursing labor. And you see really good companies like Accolade, for example, that are very, very dependent on that concierge service using nurses as the stewards to answer consumer questions and help them find the right service mix that's in there. And so I think that's one choice. I think we need more brokers. I think we need more advisors in this employee benefit space. And I think we need more diversification or diversity of people inside this because we, we need to begin to resemble the employers that are in the marketplace. And we have a lot more what would be classically called minority business owners. I don't refer to it that way. I think we have a lot more businesses that are led by very, very bright people who just happen to have a different ethnicity or they're now female-led. And I think that is a remarkably good story that we need to continue to advance and invest in. And our industry, I think, needs to change as well to reflect that. And then last one after shortages and service is the prescription drug industry. And I think there's this sort of light darkness conversation. The light part of this is how quickly they went from concept to market in this COVID vaccination. I think that was remarkable. And whether or not, you know, the FDA, you know, trims some shortcuts or whether or not, I, I just think it's, it shows the spirit of American innovation and American capitalism and American economy to change what they're doing to manufacture masks, to manufacture vaccinations in rather rapid times. I, I think it was just a remarkable story. However, what hasn't changed is still the underlying cost of the prescription drugs in the marketplace. And the, the PBM market share, in many respects, some of that responsibility. And I think you're probably in a better position than me to talk about the sort of push on transparency inside this industry and how there is still an appetite for price controls or some relief on price increases in the pharmaceutical industry. I think those are the three. I think this is still a relationship business, but who's buying and how they're buying is different. I think this is still, we still have shortages in our supply chain and in our industry, but we need to figure out a way to make investments to make that happen. And then lastly, I think prescription drugs are still a headline. They're still page one, but there's both positive and a challenging story that we need to recognize with the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, Congress is really interested in this prescription drug issue. They're looking a lot at what they can do, what the easiest thing for them to touch is the Medicare program, particularly Medicare Part B. But the current Congress really, really wants to go beyond that. They want to pass legislation that changes drug pricing for everybody. And it will be difficult. It'll be very difficult. The pharmacy lobby is tough. They are really strong. They've got a million foot soldiers. And they really love to mobilize also patient advocate groups that benefit greatly from some of the wonder drugs that they have done. So I, I agree that's that's that. And you know, one of the things I also thought was interesting during this 
pandemic, which I want to ask you about that next, but was this whole thing of broker agency mergers and acquisitions did not miss a beat. Right. It, it, you know, it just seemed like it continued on. So I think that's a trend we're going to keep seeing. So what about trends that kind of came with COVID-19? Do you think there are any of those that are different than what you described before? And do you think they might just go away or do you think some of them might stay? I think the, the adjustments that businesses have made during the past 17 months or so, I think are going to stay. I think they're systemic now and I think they are rooted in what we do. So I think technology has played a greater role or greater emphasis of investment in all things, whether that's business, whether that's processes, whether that's in communication, such as, you know, most of us are probably fatigued by Zoom and and go to meetings, right? We're just literally fatigued by them. And I welcome just straight phone calls nowadays because it's a welcome relief to just talk on the phone as opposed to being in a video camera 24-7. However, I think what we're learning is that we need to leverage technology in a slightly different way, and we need to digitize everything from information to how we work and how we operate. And so the virtual world is here, and I think it's here to stay. I think what, what will be interesting is how, again, that is leveraged to change the way in which you interact with customers, consumers, employees, employers. For example, I'm a member of the Cleveland Clinic Health System here in Cleveland, Ohio, and I've integrated my CVS app and information with my Cleveland Clinic app and information. So my medical information in a secured way is moving in and out of both apps. So I don't have just an integrated health system. I have a virtually integrated health system. And I think that's the transformative thing that's happened because we saw just in our agency industry, we saw the consolidation of hospitals and health systems. And doctors moving to a less of a private practice to more of a corporate practice, so to speak, with the hospitals as employees. And we saw them start putting brick and mortar in neighborhoods and let those service feeder systems into their main campuses. We saw that restructuring happening over the past 15, 20 years. Now we're seeing, as you pointed out earlier, the telemedicine, telehealth, virtual systems So I don't necessarily need to be in the neighborhood to see my doctor. I could be across the world to Mm -hmm. spend time with my doctor and I could have all of my blood pressure readings, all of my heart readings, all of my medications, all in a digital format and uploaded and sent to my doctor who can then work with me on whatever the appropriate protocols are I need to work on. I think that's a transformative nature of coming out of COVID for the health space I think the agency space is is very, very similar. I saw so many people and agencies digitize more and more of their environment, create portals where clients and advisors or consultants can operate inside of a secure informational network and a portal, essentially their own client room, and they can transact and do business that way. So I think that digitize of the environment, that technology will be a continuing investment to streamline their operations. The motto is still easier, faster, better. How can I do things easier? How can I make the customer experience better? And we all want information faster in a readable way so that we can course correct our business and move it into a more sustainable place. I think that's what I see sort of just in a narrow way coming out of COVID. You kind of led into the the last question I was going to ask you had to do with innovation and technology. I think you you mentioned a lot of the things that I, I know of, and I don't know if you have anything to add. 
One of a couple of the things that I've seen that are also in the health care space, and I've integrated my records also, my CVS record with our health system here as well. And, and it is interesting to do that. And I think it's helpful to your provider when you go in and then they can see all the things that they need to see. But I've also seen like a preponderance of new apps out there. And of course, everybody is glued to their phone. But for every kind of thing you can think of, and the latest one that I saw was actually an app for cancer patients so that you could, and it actually, you, you interacted with a nurse, you were assigned someone when you signed up for this, and it was just very interesting. And then I saw another one earlier for people with chronic back pain that was developed by an orthopedic surgeon and so forth. Any others that you've heard of that I haven't mentioned? There's probably a million others out there, but this technology surge is amazing. Yeah, and I think over the next three to five years, I think there'll be trillions of dollars invested in technology, new technology, but also re-engineering existing technology. You talked about apps. I think we're going to be looking at more sustainable investment in the infrastructure to move the information digitally, the 5Gs, the 6Gs, wherever this is going to end up taking us. I think we're going to see a lot more infrastructure expense so that we can operate in a digital and virtual world with greater reliability of service and, and usage. And today, I can't tell you how many Zoom users there are, but just let's compare that to five years ago and the, the explosion. This is a good week for us as we understand that a lot of the big tech companies are, are posting their earnings this week. And everybody's fascinated now by Google and what they're going to report because their ad revenue, digital ad revenue was way up coming out of the pandemic. But what are the users now? How many users are back on Google? And Pinterest went down on the user side, but up on the digital environment. So are we now approaching a place where we have technology fatigue? It's an interesting thing to think about. So the advertisers are going to the digital marketplace, but the consumers using it may be actually retreating because they, they have fatigue. I'm curious about where the consumer is going to land on this over the next year. As we begin to sort of come out of the pandemic and return to a more balanced normalcy in our lives, of a non-virtual, virtual combination. I'll be fascinated to see where this all goes. But you're absolutely right about apps. Apps are going to explode. And I think that's why there's been lots of legal cases challenging monopolist nature of Apple's iStore. If that's the only place you can place your app, what kind of market do you actually have? And so I think those are the interesting, the interesting things about the business model that, that we are all going to have to confront because you're going to have a great idea. You're going to move it to an app but do you have a marketplace to move it to? Or is that marketplace shutting you down? I think it's a great question. Well, we have a lot to look forward to and a lot to watch for. Perry, I really appreciate your being on our podcast today. And Dan, I'll turn it back to you. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. Shall we toast to Perry Braun and the Benefit Advisors Network? Absolutely. Yeah. I really appreciate everything that you all do and we love collaborating with you so thanks so much for being on today and i guess we end with cheers thank you for joining us for the nahu healthcare happy hour the official podcast of the national association of health underwriters for more information on nahu's government affairs efforts or to become a member visit nahu.org